Okie dokie, folks. Welcome to the Roots Report podcast presented by Motif Magazine, sponsored by The Parlor, R1 Entertainment, and the Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden. I am your host, John Fusick. Today we have musician Frankie O'Rourke. Frankie will be appearing at the Met in Pawtucket on Sunday, March 20th. In this episode, we discuss O'Rourke's long music career, his bands, recordings, and the upcoming show at the Met. Hi, Frank. How are you doing? Good. A little laryngitis. Laryngitis? That's not good if you're going to be singing soon. I know it. I know it. I'm, I'm nursing it along right now. So, you have a show coming up at the Met in Pawtucket on March 20th. You want to tell me what's going to go on that day? We've had this project going on for a couple of years now. It's an offshoot of the other half, and it's called Frankie O'Rourke and Friends. Literally, is half of the other half, and like half of that band, Riz. We've sort of been friends since 1974, 75. We've done a number of shows together over the years, and so the idea was to come home and put together an evening of all original music, and with some of the better players that I could find around, John. So who's going to be playing with you? There's Judy Choice. Um, her name was, maiden name was Harrison. She was one of the lead singers of the other half. Myself, Ken Johnson on drums, Dave Tannery on electric guitar, Rick Kudo on percussion, Ken Johnson on drums, and Ken Reynolds on bass. Paul Belay on piano. It makes a total of a seven-piece uh, unit. Now, how many of these folks were with the other half? Myself, Judy, and Ken Johnson. The other half, for those who don't remember, was a band that was started in the 70s and mm -hmm. used to play quite a bit around the area. One of the places you used to play was George's in Harmony, right? <laughs> it is, yeah. We got our start there, John, to be honest with you. That is a place that's near and dear to my heart as I've been going there for 50 years and unfortunately now it's closed it went from it George, is? yep it went from george's to chester's to the harmony lodge and covid killed it so now it's closed oh no yeah it's a shame i was i was playing there pretty regularly for the past mm -hmm. few years and unfortunately it didn't make it through covid yeah, they're not the only ones, unfortunately. No, a lot of stuff closed because of COVID. You live out on the Cape? Yeah, I've been out here since 1982. I moved out. I left the other half. I retired from performing, and I moved down here and went to college. I went to the community college for two years, and then I went off to London, London and finished my studies in Music history, art history, some theory, which didn't stick very well, by the way. <laughs> Where in London did you go? It's called Ealing Hammersmith. When I went, it was just called Ealing College, but they joined with this other school, Hammersmith, so they combined the two colleges. Now, what made you decide to go out to London for a music school? Well, you know what? One of my professors, he was, he was a, you know, he had his doctorate and all that, and he said to me, because I had already played in the other half and, you know, he, he knew about my music career and all that. And he said, do something different. Don't just, you've been accepted at all these schools. Go do something different. So I did. I went to London. I saved up some money. I got a scholarship and I had a heck of a time, John. The music scene, the art scene, it was just tremendous. I just engulfed myself with it. That espresso and Gelois cigarettes. <laughs> My introduction to you was when I was in high school. I think I was 
15 or 16 years old. I would sit in the hallway in high school and play guitar, and there would be an influx of people that would wander in and out of that hallway and pick up a guitar and jam. And and one day you showed up, and <laughs> that you know you would do that quite often because you were friends with some of the seniors, and um, mm-hmm. you played a song which has stuck in my head since that time, and it actually was one of the inspirations for me to become a songwriter because I had never met anybody who had written a song before and you were the first person that actually i met that wrote a song and it was a song called valentine and that song has stuck in my head for 50 years pretty much and i have always been impressed by that song and we used to play that song in the hallway with you leading us on and even when you weren't around we would play it and I would catch the other half playing it occasionally throughout the years and then lost track of you. And then a few years ago, we reconnected and you sent, mm-hmm. me, you sent me a copy of your CD. And it was nice to have an actual recording of that song because I had only had the memory of the song in, in my head for years. Mm-hmm. Why don't we give that song a listen now? I'm going I'm to play the song now.
I love that song, Frank. And uh, what was the inspiration for that song? And and when did you write that song? I know it's I know it's kind of old, and you're going to date yourself by telling me how old the song is. <laughs> but let's let's get into the meat of that song and telling all about what what that song was. The song was growing up around you know Greenville, Smithfield, Foster, Gloucester, and all that. And uh, there were all these factions of guys who hung out around. Uh, it was sort of like the greasers, the musicians, the long hairs, the, um, the jocks, and all that. And there was this one group of guys that hung out on the bridge in Japatchet called the Bridge Boys. And I just, I just was so stuck. I said, I got to say something about that. It came to me rather spontaneously, like around 1974. And now I've dated myself. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there were little nods and innuendos to people and friends and that's sort of how that song sort of blossomed and became like the song that we were most noted for i think with the other half now you recorded it with the other half way back in 77 wasn't it oh yeah that's the first recording very interesting recording it was engineered by our guitar player now dave tannery as i said he's been friends of mine since 1974 and um he recorded that cd the original other half CD in 1977 was the first public recording of Valentine. There were lots of bootlegs of it, trust me. I'm sure there were. Um, <laughs> I was given many shows on cassette tapes back in the day, John, so I've got quite a collection of them. But they're fun, you know, some at Lupo's, Gulliver's even, um, Chamasillan and so you started writing songs when you were 15. What, yes, I what did. Was, what was your inspiration for becoming a songwriter? John Prine, John Prine, and John Prine. And John Believe Prine, wasn't, he wasn't that popular back then either, so he was kind of an underground figure back then. Well, I was in Chicago then, being the sort of middle-of-the-road truant musician that I was. I got sent off to my father's to live when I was about 14 and a half, 15. And um, it just so happened to be in the early 70s when John Prine and Steve Goodman were coming out and emerging in the Chicago folk scene. And John Prine played right down the street from our house at a place called The Fifth Peg. And so we could go there on a Friday, Saturday night and see him. And uh, some nights you'd go on an open mic and he'd show up at open mic. And then pretty soon he was getting bigger and bigger and, well, the rest was history. Right. So he, like I said, John, I, I got to see him many times. I got to play with him a couple of times. I didn't do anything more than strum rhythm guitar and 
a couple of Hank Williams songs that he sang. Uh, it was a, it was an experience for me, an enlightening experience. I'm sure. So you came back to Rhode Island and mm-hmm. you started the other half. Yes. And you played, you know, you played the typical band circuit in Rhode Island mm-hmm. back then. And mm-hmm. from where did that go? You, the other half, uh, what happened to the other half? We actually hit the college circuit for a while with our managers, the Vanzini Brothers. You probably know Jack and everybody pretty well. Right. Um, and Jack was managing us. And so we're playing like for opening to like Aztec Two-Step, Tom Rush and Pusset Dark Band and Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen. And oh, this goes a mile long. We did a million openings. Country Joe and the Fish, it was just Country Joe and Mike Felton, Melton the Fish, asked us to be their road band. We opened up for them a couple of nights. So yeah, come on the road with us. What happened? It seems like you were poised for something bigger. Yeah. You know what? It's called, in the long run, it's called mental illness. I have bipolar disorder. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's no big deal. I mean, I had to deal with it for a while that I didn't, I was undiagnosed, um, sort of ran around helter-skelter there for a while, but I was able to curb it. It really doesn't affect much of my life anymore. But back then, it was a little rough, and it was probably a little rough on, on my bandmates, too, because they didn't know what cycle I was on, whether I was up or down. Or, um, well, well, back then, it wasn't really a thing that anybody even talked about or really was aware of. Yeah, I wasn't aware of it. Yeah, most people didn't know about, I mean, they called it manic depression back then, and they didn't really, uh, I don't know, it was something that wasn't spoken about, it was something that wasn't discussed, uh, or even, there wasn't a lot of knowledge about it either. So I can imagine no. it was taken kind of, must have been tough. Must have been very it was tough. tough. It was tough on relationships with people because they, like I said, they don't know whether you're up in a cycle or whether you're down in a cycle and angry at everybody in the world and everybody sucks but, but me. Well, I'm sure that back then, because, you know, there was alcohol and drugs involved and things as well, I'm sure that made a... Yeah, that certainly didn't help, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Well, that's a shame. So, after that, after the demise of the other half, what happened? That's when I moved to the Cape, John. That's when the end of the drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, everything went out the window. And I buckled down and got my mental health together um, over the course of of the time and buckled down in school, did really well for a change. I never was studious in high school and uh, college was an eye-opener for me. Really glad I did it, but like I said, I don't remember much of the music theory. No, I I was in the same boat. I I, I, uh, took some college. I actually started as a music major and then vanished because it was just, I don't know, we just didn't see eye to eye on things. I just wanted to play music and that was, music theory at that time was like math. So didn't yeah. didn't make the connection with me. So I just stuck with playing from the heart. And that's what I've done. As much as my father tried to coerce me into really sticking with it, because he was a classical guitar player and he played by music, mm-hmm. and uh, he really kind of was a stickler. Come on, stick to it, stick to it. And I'm like, Bob, it's just not for me. It just doesn't. It just doesn't speak to me. Well, and then so, you went and started this other band, the Full Circle Band. When did that come about? Um, that was. Early 90s. 
That's when I was all done with school. I had, I was married. I had four children. It was time to do something with music because I, uh, I, I'm a prolific writer. I have hundreds of songs, and it's like, holy cow, what am I going to do with all this? So we did that as original project, the Full Circle Band, and that that went really well. We were doing like shows. We were charging ten dollar admission, fifteen dollar admission, and we invited other acts to come join us, like acts we had performed with in the past like who said dart and um jonathan edwards and tom rush and where were you playing at this time um lupo's the met um guido murphy's in connecticut the hungry tiger in hartford there was a place on long island we played we played in massachusetts a little bit not too much but we mostly hung around rhode island and a lot of the reason was because tom enright who was playing guitar with us and beaver brown he didn't like traveling overnight anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like if he wasn't in his bed that night, he was like, nah, I don't want to do that one. <laughs> so I had two guitar players all the time. So it was like, well, we could survive without one less mouth to feed. But, so who else so, was in the Full Circle Band? Well, it was Fred Wilkes, Bucky Dunn, Ken Johnson, Judy, um, another friend of ours, Dawn, Dawn Bergstrom. Let's see, Mike Nanny. Sounds like quite a big band. Yeah, and we we uh, we morphed a couple of times. We ended up with the bass player we have now, Ken Reynolds from Riz, because they were doing very little, and our bass player um, Bucky had sort of wandered off again. That's what the, that's what someone said in an article about him. They wrote about the other half years ago. I think it was in one of the Providence papers, and they described him as wandering bassist Bucky Dunn. <laughs> And that sort of stuck with him, wandering bassist, Bucky Don. So with the Full Circle Band, you recorded the uh, CD Old Home Days? Is that who you recorded uh, that with? No, uh, the Winds of Change. Oh, Winds of Change. Mm-hmm. Who did you record Old Home Days with? With the, a lot of the group that we're with now, with um, Dave Tannery leading the way on a lot of the work, myself. Um, let's see, Rick Kudo played on some. Uh, Ken Johnson played on a couple of numbers. It spread out over a few different people. It was quite a mix, that album. So the Wind of Change CD, when did that one come out? um, Let's see, 2004. It wasn't until I came back from Michigan that I released it. And how well, how did that do? How... What were you doing? Very with that? well. Were you playing around in support of that one? Yeah, I did. And actually, we had cassettes of that when we had the Full Circle Band. And we sold zillions of them, the cassette tape. And I released it in CD form in 2004. And then after that, what happened to the Full Circle Band? Well, the circle, Full Circle disbanded. And I'm trying to think what happened. Oh, my father got sick, John. Oh, I'm sorry. And he was out in Michigan, Upper Peninsula, Michigan. So I journeyed out to be with him. And it turned out to be it was his last year of life. So I spent a good part of the time taking care of him. Mm-hmm. And I made a lot of friends there. I made a lot of musician friends. And the next thing you knew, I was playing in a band part-time. And uh, did a lot of that. My father was happy about that, that I was playing music. But... um. I was only out there a year with him, and he passed away um, in his sleep of a heart attack. He went quietly in the night. That's probably the best way if you're going to go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I stayed out there another two to three years off and on recording and playing with Lickety Split, which was a band. I was doing solo work and then playing bass for this band. And I played because they made real good money playing at the ski resorts and casinos. 
Mm, yes, that's where the money is. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's where the money is. But the casinos were a lot of fun. The casinos were, yeah, they weren't necessarily there to see you, but no, they but, paid a lot of money. Oh, yeah, they pay well, but it's, you're just an attraction to get them in and gamble. Yeah. So after that, you came back to the Cape and you started working on mm -hmm. music again. And that's when old home days started. That's correct. Okay. So let's talk about that CD. Okay. Tell me a little bit about how that one came into being. It... Old Home Days was started with some songs that I had written a while ago, but I'd always wanted them to put them to CD because it's music that was more getting out of the just strict folky vein of mine and mining more of the some of the rock music that I've written over the years, mm -hmm. more up-tempo, things like Valentine and stuff. And so, and I also just wanted it to be an homage to old home days is about the foster fair they used to call it but before that it was old home days so i don't think anyone would take notice of that except me but that was that's what it is about and it's just a couple of uh live songs a bunch of songs um serious songs too john there's some serious material on there well, let's let's give uh, this song that you sent me, Highlands and Road. Let's give that one a listen. Then we can chat a little bit about that one. There's a song that I hear, it's on the 
why don't you tell me about the song? When I traveled in the Midwest and we played at the casinos, the disparity between the, the casinos and the villages that immediately were benefited by them, and you would go out into the, the lesser populated areas where these casinos were like a mere truck stop. Not even a truck stop, but like a gas station with a restaurant attached. I just, I just was always in my mind about, you know, how the settlers came into the country and they just sort of absorbed all the land, you know, up there where I was. And it, it had a, an effect on me. I mean, I made friends with a, a guy who was the chief of police for the tribe and uh, and his son, who was a like a sergeant or something, but I did this over for dinner one time, and I just remember driving up through the, rolling up through the neighborhood, and everyone had like five, six cars, broken down cars in the yard, John. And I didn't take it as anything wrong. I just thought maybe that's a sign of wealth, too. You know, you have spare parts, um, <laughs> something along those lines. I don't know, but it just, it just, it just uh, made me want to write something about it. So where did the name High Lonesome Road come from? Well, it's about a, uh, it's a fictitious story about a person, you know, who heads out, you know, starts off like his father being a gambler and he heads out, he heads west and he heads north and he settles up in the Northland. And it's just the High Lonesome Road is him being by himself for a period of time. But then he meets uh, an indigenous woman, they have children and uh, he learns to take their ways. I'm mad at the producer on that one song because he made me take a verse out. It was kind of chilling, but it was kind of was like one of the whole points of the song, you know? What was the verse about? Well, it was about um, they took mothers, they took children, they were gathered up like sheep, put them in their prison, and they've killed them in their sleep. The warriors, they were hunted and they're driven from this land for God and for the country and the mighty Uncle Sam. Hmm. And he thought, well, that's a little too, that's a little descriptive. It's descriptive, but it's true. Yeah, that's what I think. Mm. But uh, sounds powerful. Yeah, when I wrote it, it, it sure meant a lot to me, John. Well, that's the the job of the producer to try to make it the best way to get the music out there. And unfortunately, it's not always the same idea that the songwriter has. And we as songwriters know that that's the way it works. And unfortunately, mm. but you have the ability as a performer to throw that verse in when you're singing oh yes we do <laughs> so is that one of the songs that you'll be pay playing at the met on march 20th yeah almost that whole cd will you be i'm only looking at a couple of songs we're not doing wild night which is the only cover on the cd because we're doing all originals so wild night won't be covered but everything else on there we're doing and you're, you'll be playing valentine of course Oh, heck yeah. I've never done a show in my life without that one, without someone at least saying it. And you'll be having guests perform, right? Well, it's um, not really guests. It's the, it's the whole concept is the friends is are the guests. It's just, you know, friends of ours. It's not like an open day where people are going to come up and play with us. We have um, two, you know, rehearsed sets of music. Okay. And... Uh, I got the feeling there was you you know there were songs that you had friends you know people that played before would stop by and jump in on a song or something that's that's the we feeling. were gonna do that it's interesting you bring that up we were gonna do that I think some of the people were into it and some of the people were well let's just do our show you know we have a show to do 
But I was kind enough for having a, a guitar player or two stop by, or if you, if you could get Kevin Fallon out of retirement, you know. <laughs> you know Kevin? Yes, I do. It's been a while since I've seen him, but I know him. I love that man. He taught me a lot about music. He's an extremely talented musician. Woo! I had the pleasure of a quartet with him one time. Just me on lead guitar, Kevin on fiddle, Bucky Dunn on bass, and David Blanchett on drums. And that was a smoking little quartet, boy. There were a lot of a lot of talented people in the in the music area in the Rhode Island music scene, and and uh, you've played with a <laughs> lot of them. <laughs> George's was like a hotbed, John. It like, was. It was back in the like day. like a springboard for a lot of people. Right, right. It was. It's a shame that it's it's sitting there vacant right now. No, oh, man. Well, so you want to tell me a little bit more about the uh, the March 20th show? It's a Sunday, and it's going to be from 4 to 8 p.m. Yeah. And you have two sets planned, mm -hmm. and you're going to be playing all your original music. And it sounds like a fun day. It's a great, you know, great activity for a Sunday. Yeah, it'll be fun because um, it's the first day of spring, for one. We've got some new material we've been just introducing to the crowd, new songs that aren't even recorded yet. I've started the next CD, Blue Waters, but the day starts off with a couple of real up-tempo, new original songs, and then we jump right into Winter Change and kind of foster our way on through. Oh, it sounds like a... A very, very good afternoon of music. Uh, you can get home early. It won't be a late night for anybody. So you can head out to the Met in Pawtucket. Uh, I believe the website is themetri.com for more information about tickets and address and other things. If you've never been to the Met, you should check it out. It's quite a nice place. And you can you can get the old Lupos t-shirts there now, too. They're selling the old Lupos t-shirts. Which, I'm going to get me one this time. Yeah, for I, I gave my girlfriend my old Lupo's t-shirt, which when I bought it, it was one of the last ones, but I bought it at the original Lupo's. It was the, one of the last ones, and it was a collector's item, so I bought it, and it wasn't my size, and I've had it forever, and I've never been able to wear it because it's been too small, so I'm hopefully will get a new Lupo's t-shirt eventually. So <laughs> there's another reason to go, just to hear some great music, and catch up with a lot of old friends and get your get your new Lupo shirt. Uh, John, there's a lot of old friends still hanging out out there. Well, Our it's last a, show there was a pleasant surprise. Well, it's a good chance for a lot of people to connect again. So, mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to let you go. I appreciate the phone call, and hopefully folks will come on out and see some very talented folks on March 20th at the Met in Pawtucket. Thank you very much, John. Thank you, Frank, and uh, hopefully I'll see you. Oh, I'd love to see you. All right, thank you. Take care. Okie dokie. Thanks to Frankie O'Rourke for being part of this episode of the Roots Report podcast. The Roots Report podcast is presented by Motif Magazine and sponsored by The Parlor, R1 Entertainment, and the Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden. Thanks for listening. <laughs>